Hello and welcome to another edition of Exploring Mental Illness, Everything You Wanted to Know but Were Afraid to Ask. This is Derek Molhan back with you with Carrie Ballou. Carrie, how are you? I am fantastic on this rather rainy and windy day. How are you? Uh, you know what? Struggling a little bit. Holidays were tough. Still struggling right now, but I'm not going to hide it from anybody. It's I, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis. Having some problems. Uh, my birthday's coming up. I'm going to turn 48. My dad died when he was 48. I don't want to panic for the whole year until I turn 49. So I was at the doctor the other day, got a clean bill of health, um, which was good. All my numbers are trending. Lost 48 pounds for the year last year. Oh, fantastic. Uh, cholesterol went down. Blood sugar's going down. It's just I have this unwanted fear. And I'm kind of in limbo right now with my job. And like I said, there's just a, there's a ton of things going on I just don't have answers for. So I'm just plodding through, digging away. I wake up in the morning and that's the first positive thing that goes right. So it's one of those things. I understand. I think that some days obviously are better than others. And, you know, your journey is specific to you. And some days I feel like I wake up and even me, who I often get referred to as having jazz hands, there are days where I really have to, to fake it to make it. Life events, work events, professional, personal can get in the way. And there are some times I wake up and I open my eyes and I'm bubbly and I'm excited for the day. And there are some where I'm just thankful I'm on this side of the dirt. Yeah. my I have, I have two people who are going through some. Uh, my friend Jimmy got into a car wreck and um, he walked away un, unscathed, which he, he shouldn't have. He should have been killed. But he's upset because he's, he's trying to find a new car. And he's like, I don't have any luck. The best luck would have been if I got killed in the crash. So I'm trying to keep him positive. And then my cousin lost his job. Um, and he doesn't know what he wants to do. So he's getting into the depressive funk, even though he's not designated, he, even though he doesn't have mental illness, he's starting to, to fall into that, into that funk. And I'm trying to keep these guys afloat. So it's, it's tough because I care about them both. I love them both my, like me, you know, like brothers trying to help them out and then trying to keep a positive attitude myself. So, but you remember who comes first? No, I understand. And if it wasn't something I couldn't handle, then I would say, listen, I, I can't handle this, but it actually helps me to help them to help get perspective on my own life at the same time. So I feel like the, the more that I've worked in mental health and substance abuse treatment, the more I see folks who are on the other end. They've gone through it. They're on the other side of things. And um, one of the things that really helps them along for their own maintaining their own recovery and health and mental health is helping others, doing service, doing for others. Sometimes I wonder if it's a distraction or if it's just a genuine dopamine rush when you get that positive feedback or you feel like, you know, you helped your cousin look at a situation differently. Well, I, I so look forward to going to work now because I'm appreciated at my work yeah. uh, at Providence College as a, as a cameraman, and I absolutely love it. I love my job, but it's mostly on weekends, so I have the whole week. So I have to find some, you know, sometimes I go for walks at two in the morning just to gain perspective, and I love taking my walks, you know, up Amos's Boulevard, it's everything's lit up, and it gives me perspective, and I go home and I feel a lot better about it. I mean, two in the morning, maybe I should try to get that to like seven or eight in the morning, but if I can't, I don't stay in the house. I just go out, get some perspective, and go from there, so. But, um, Anyway, um, you have some numbers and some feedback before we get to our guests, correct? Yeah, so pretty uh, cool stuff. We are 
According to Austin, we were able to get some statistics, and we are at, this is episode 14, and we have had, uh, was it 2100 almost? Oh, 27, apparently. I was, maybe I read yeah, the one. I, I thought it was closer right. to 3,000, yeah. So we're close to 3,000 downloads on our various platforms, which is pretty awesome, and that was very, with a lot of word of mouth and not a lot of marketing, so we're less looking. Than, less than a year, too, because our first one, I was just looking at our notes from when we started, our first one was... I think January 28th of last year. So um, we're right on. We're on our one year anniversary. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy, huh? Yeah. We've had a lot of opportunity to, um, or at least Austin and I had a chance to meet and talk about some different ways to start to get the word out there about our podcast. And we'll give you, you the listeners, some more information after on how to rate, review us, follow us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google and so forth. But I was at work, so for folks that may not know, I work at Fuller Hospital in Attleboro, Massachusetts. It's an inpatient a psychiatric hospital, but we also have outpatient services. My role is community relations, liaison, marketer, you name a hat, I probably have worn it at least once. And one of my most favorite things is customer service. But this isn't like your typical call center customer service experience. I usually get phone calls a lot of the time for people looking and seeking services. But I was pleasantly surprised when I got a call from a woman who's a local resident who had listened to our podcast and she is herself, she is diagnosed bipolar, she is in recovery, and she has had a really interesting life. We had a chance to meet face-to-face, but she reached out to me because of this podcast. Derek, she could not sing her praises um, high enough for hearing you uh, and about your story. She really identified a lot, and she was very impressed with the podcast and, and your role. So I wanted to give you props for that. I appreciate it. You know, um, I don't take compliments well. I'm just, I just want to help people. And I'm glad that I can connect with her. And, and if she's out there listening right now, I want to say hello to her. If she ever needs to reach out to me, you know, directly, you can give her my, feel free to give her all my contact information, my email and, and, and stuff like that. But I'm glad that we're reaching people. So thank you for that. Like I said, I just, I've been working on with my therapist, you know, when somebody pays you a compliment, you got to start saying thank you. Don't say, oh, I'm just doing my job, you know, stuff like that. Just take the combo. So I will, I will say thank you on that. You're um, well deserved. Before we get to our guests, I just wanted to mention one thing which was really great. Um, DC Comics right now is doing a nine-pot one-off series called Heroes in Crisis, and it's based on mental health for superheroes. Oh, wow. It is real. I don't know. I don't know, Austin, if you've heard about it. I'm picking up issue five on the 30th. It's a monthly comic book. It's a nine pot series. Like I said, it's what in the comic book world we call a one off. And Batman decided to build what's called Sanctuary, where only the superheroes know what it's about and where it is. And it's a place for them to deal with their alcoholism, with their mental health issues, with their panic and anxiety. So if anybody thinks, well, I'm a superhero, I would be cured. No, you wouldn't. And this series shows that even superheroes need someone to talk to because they deal with life and death. I, and I know this is in the comic world and it's not real, but it gets real when you read this series. Um, once again, it's called Heroes in Crisis. It's a nine-pot series. It's not for the faint of heart because somebody has broken into the sanctuary and taken away their only peace of mind when they're not out fighting crime. So there's some death in it, but it the overlying arc is dealing with mental health, dealing with addiction in their everyday lives as a superhero. And, and 
right now. It's just a fantastic, fantastic uh, read right now. Like I said, it's going to go nine issues. You can pick up the nine issues at any comic retailer, or um, they'll come out with what's called an omnibus, which will be all nine issues in one book, and that will be later on in the year. Excellent. I'm making notes right now. The first thing I thought of when you mentioned this is uh, is our adolescents. We do serve adolescents 12 to 18 years old over at Fuller in an inpatient setting. It can definitely be a slippery slope trying to identify with teenagers who are just living teenage lives, having teenage feelings and hormones, but are also in, in, a, in a mental health crisis. Uh, so maybe this is something that they could benefit from. Yeah, and so it's funny it's, because Batman is the one who put it together, and he doesn't have any superpowers. He's just a regular guy, and he realized the need for something like this for the other heroes. So enough about us and in, in comic books and how you haven't seen any Star Wars movies yet. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> introduce, if you'd like, introduce our guest. Absolutely. So I'm very happy to introduce our guest today. Uh, Todd Whitridge is here with us. Hello, Todd. How are you today? Hi, Carrie. I'm great. How are you? Good. So Todd is a, uh, a colleague of mine and I would yeah, I'd say a friend. Yeah. Absolutely. He is in recovery. And uh, a while back, one of our, our listeners had emailed us with an interest in wanting to hear about somebody's journey through addiction and mental health. Um, we talk a lot about addiction and dual diagnosis. We talk about services to really get into the shoes of somebody who's been been there and has come out on the other side positively. We haven't really dove into yet. So um, that is why Todd is with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Todd, tell us a little bit about your your history, your story. Sure. So, I grew up in, uh, spent the first part of my childhood in Boston, um, second part of my childhood in the suburbs of Boston. Um, grew up with in an idyllic family, wonderful parents, uh, wonderful brothers. And, you know, every opportunity afforded to me. I, I didn't have really any of the stressors that you oftentimes hear associated with addiction, which, oddly enough, provided one of the biggest barriers uh, to me. And I can explain that a little bit more. But basically, I had a pretty normal life, happy life, and went off to, uh, went to high school. And in high school, started drinking when, you know, everyone kind of starts drinking, or at least I thought everyone <laughs> kind of started drinking. Um, and originally, when I started drinking, it was not to fill a hole or to escape anything. It was just because that's what everyone was doing. And I enjoyed it. A lot of times, I spend a lot of time in the recovery community, um, very active in the recovery community. So I hear a lot of people's stories. And a lot of times you hear people share their story and they, they talk about their first drink or their first drug and they say that they like instantly knew that they were in love and it filled this hole and everything. I don't have that experience. I don't even really even remember my first drink. It was just what everyone else was doing. So that's what I did. That's how it basically started. And But I really did like it a lot. And I had um, a lot of fun with it. In middle school and high school, I was this sort of, until about junior high school, I was short, fat, um, unathletic, over-emotional, hyperactive, um, so I made friends really easily, as you can probably imagine. Before I hit my growth spurt, and um, you know, I, I found that it was easier for me to socialize. It gave me that sort of that ability to, to fit in a little bit more. Um, liquid confidence. Liquid confidence. Yeah, yeah. You know, the ability to finally talk to girls and things like that. So I enjoyed it and went off to college and 
I was probably an alcoholic. Um, I'm going to say I was already an alcoholic probably by freshman year of college. Not quite a daily drinker yet, but that was pretty soon to come. Didn't do well very well in college. They actually require you to go to class. Um, that was not something I was interested in. I was one of those students that I either got an A or an F, or I got like a B or an F. So if I liked the subject matter and I liked the teacher, I did okay. Or if the subject matter came naturally to me. If I had to work too hard for it, or if I didn't like the teacher, I just didn't go. That caught up with me pretty quickly. Did you feel that you needed, did you get to the point where you feel you needed a drink to start the day? And the subjects you didn't like, you were just like, well, I don't like these subjects. I could be drinking instead of doing something, these subjects I didn't like. Not yet in college. I hadn't started uh, morning drinking. I didn't start morning drinking until way later. It was me just being like, I'd rather be doing nothing. I'd rather be in my dorm room or I'd rather be planning the next party um, or sleeping off the hangover or just, I mean, it was, college was just a big party. This is, you're going to hear this a lot from other people um, in recovery. It didn't look any different. Like, it, my behavior was identical, largely, to my, my peers. Um, because at that point, that was the way people were behaving. They were drinking. My friends in college were drinking four or five nights a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the, you know, the, the class schedule or the final schedule or what have you. But it didn't look very different. That kind of followed me for a while in my peer groups. You said you, you were pretty much aware that you were an alcoholic. Did you look at your friends as alcoholics also? No, I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question, actually. I, something about me, I just knew it. I don't know why I knew it. When I say I, I, I was probably an alcoholic, I was an alcoholic already like freshman year of college. That's retrospective. Um, when I actually knew I was a full-blown alcoholic, I was probably like 22, 23, um, which is still pretty early for most alcoholics. It takes most people a lot of years at the time. I didn't look at them and think we're all a bunch of alcoholics. I didn't have that definition. Tell us, you know, um, what happened with college and after. Did you graduate? Did you? No. What so I, I, got, I got asked to leave that college four times um, and talked my way back in all four times. Then after the fourth time, um, I was planning on going back. My father said, I think I'd rather do something more useful this, with this money, like light it on fire. So... I jumped in, this is uh, 1998, and I actually jumped into the dot-com boom. Um, this was during the dot-com boom. I left college and kind of snuck my way into a startup. And well, was, you, weren't, you weren't the only one you know, the dot-com <laughs> boom. Everybody was quitting college because yeah. it was so fast, so, so hard. Yeah, I had a good friend of my brother's, uh, my older brother's, a good friend of my older brother's was one of those. He left the University of Michigan early on and and uh, went to Yahoo. I think he was like employee 15 or something at Yahoo. And he was one of those guys I looked at and I was like, I'm going to be that guy, you know. So I assumed that was going to be my life. I got into it. Once I was in it, I spent the next 18 years chasing technology startups. As you were chasing, was your drinking becoming more heavy? Yeah. Again, though, it was very odd in the sense that it looked very similar to the behavior of other people. And by that, I mean... One thing you're going to hear from me, um, and I, I want to preface this with, I only have the ability to talk about my experience. And you're, you do hear this a lot, though. As soon as I knew I was an alcoholic, which is roughly about age 22, 23, somewhere around then, I went into this sort of mode where I wanted to protect it. And by protect it, I mean, in my mind, internally verbalizing to myself, all right, you're an alcoholic. I probably didn't know what that meant because in my mind, it was something I could fix later or it was something I could grow out of, 
or it was something I could buy my way out of. I actually thought that was possible. Like in my mind, I was going to get wealthy enough that I could just like go to the Mayo Clinic and get all new parts and like go to Betty Ford and just have the brain cleared up. But I just had to hang on long enough to get rich enough to go get myself fixed. I even researched black market liver transplants, which is the thing that you can get done. Um, but uh, you have to go to another country, and like, some countries are cheaper than others. Uh, but I don't think that's something you want to bargain shop for. <laughs> I legitimately believe that. So I went into that protective mode, and I was doing things like when I was out drinking, as soon as I knew I was getting to the point where I was going to embarrass myself or others, I would just pull myself out. I would pull the chute, go home, and finish the job. Um, so you know, from age 20... 4, 25, 23, 24, 25, something like that. I was drinking about half a liter of vodka per day, every day, uh, without missing a day. It's amazing that you, you know, most alcoholics don't know when to stop, and they're that person on the floor who has to go home. You actually had your wits about you, even though you were still inebriated, to say, you know what, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to take off, and I'll just I'll just finish my you know I'll finish it at home. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I didn't always pull the shoot on time, you know. <laughs> um, so I had my fair share of, of embarrassing moments, but I it it wasn't so much of self control more than it was protecting my drinking because I knew that if there was too much of a spotlight on it, I would lose it. I would I would the gig would be up, and I and so I. I went into this, this hyper-protective mode where I was psychotically private, um, but while at the same time being a very public person. This is kind of a, one of those weird dichotomies. And you will see this Jekyll and Hyde in a lot of uh, alcoholics and addicts, which is I've got the real me, but then I've got the crafted me that I want you to see. And I was basically running a 15-year multi-channel marketing campaign for a broken product, me. You know, I was basically staying ahead of every communication channel and avenue, psychotically controlling photographs of myself, obsessing over the way people were talking about me and what my behavior was the night before and what it wasn't, and trying to control that story. Because again, it was just about protecting the drinking. So you said you, you chased 18 years. The dot-com went bust in about, what, 2003, 2004? Yeah, um, it, was, you... it was various technology startups that I would just, I would be in one, and I had various varying levels of success. You know, I mean, they were always in various advertising technology, web-based software executions, things like that. And a lot of them were, were very successful. And it was an environment where drinking was very um, prevalent and allowed. You had a primarily millennial workforce. You know, the that was the, the old three martini lunch. <laughs> yeah. We had, I mean, a lot of my offices had full bars in them. You know, wow. it was not it was not uncommon. And again, it, it's not weird if you're not an alcoholic. You know, it seems normal, but it's a great place for a, for an alcoholic to, to hide, especially if they can remain marginally functional. Would you given how private you were and, and, and how protective you were of your your alcoholism? Did you drink at work? Like, how were you? How was how the Todd at work versus the Todd at home as you were growing your career professionally? I mean, I, I did in the sense that I, I did with other colleagues until the very end. I never really drank during the day at the office. You know, if drinking was going on at work, it was with coworkers. Um, those coworkers would we'd go out for drinks after work. We'd have three or four drinks. They would go home and eat dinner and read a book and go to bed. And I would go home and have seven, eight, nine, ten more cocktails. 
because you were drinking so heavily, obviously your tolerance was probably better and you could hide it better? Yeah, probably. That definitely has something to do with it, especially in that in the environments where I was, you know, having, you know, three or four drinks after work, it didn't nearly, uh, that didn't scratch the surface. So as a child of a mother who I grew up with, who was an alcoholic, a lot of this is very familiar. Hungover mom trying to be a mom, putting alcoholic beverages and non-alcoholic uh, bottles in the fridge. Now you're at the end of the 18 years. You said you chased 18 years. What happened at the end of this 18 years? So in that, in my process, I married a wonderful woman and I was a terrible husband. There wasn't any sort of infidelity or physical abuse or anything like that. In my mind, I thought I was the perfect husband. You know, I didn't cheat and we didn't really have money problems. And my very existence as an alcoholic was psychotically torturous for her. The self-centeredness of an alcoholic is so grotesquely uh, emotionally abusive, um, it's, 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 it's inhuman. And basically, as I actually succeeded more, um, the last company I was with was very successful, and we were doing really well. I was in the process of opening our London office, which is retrospectively is psychotic if you think about it, because it's not the best place to send a, a vicious alcoholic. Uh, because especially it was Ireland or Scotland, man. <laughs> I mean, the, the English drink drink their lunch on a regular basis. Um, so I loved it, and my ex-wife had done a semester in in, in London, and um, she loved London. So the idea of us moving there for two years was was magical. Um, a series of events happened, and um, I actually ended up in the hospital and freakishly contracted an infection totally unrelated to drinking. Spent about 58 days in Mass General, a um, couple emergency surgeries, about six months of physical rehab, recovery from that, where, in which I didn't drink much. And then as soon as I, I got better, I went right back to it. But it really spiraled. It was really a series of resentments. I ended up Going back to the company, the company was incredibly accommodating, um, incredibly supportive. They kept my office in a museum-like state. It was unbelievable. Um, and I got back, and I was given an incredible amount of latitude to recreate my role there. I was one of the sort of the founding team members, and um, we had grown to about 150 people, and I was largely well-liked, and I was given a lot of latitude in my return, and I think it was, it was way too much latitude. And I started copying resentments over ridiculously unnecessary things, and the drinking just spiraled. Then my, my company politely asked me to move on, um, and I was given a graceful exit, not asked to really pay any price for my drinking. I was given a graceful exit. Um, losing that company was like losing a family. These weren't coworkers. These were my family. I mean, this is where I, I loved every one of them like a, like a sibling. And that trauma, that crushing loss just compounded. Um, and the period of time after that, it went from half a liter to a liter to a handle a day. Uh, and I was just drinking around the clock. And actually, um, it was my wife's concern about my mental health and fear of me committing suicide. Um, she actually suggested that I go get help for um, my suicide ideation. And I said no. Um, and she said, well, you can't do it here. So I left and I went up to New Hampshire. Uh, my family has a house on Winnipesaukee. And that's where my sort of my journey began. Um, it gets kind of uglier from there, but that's really where it kind of went off the cliff. 
um, so to speak. Losing, losing the job. Losing the job. The family, actually, yeah. yeah. And obviously, I would assume that when you're uh, when your ex had said you can't do it here, it was her graceful way of saying this is this is over. I've had it. Yeah, we went. It, you know, we started marriage counseling, and uh, it was even the marriage counselor referred to it as uh, doctor assisted divorce. And I don't blame her at all. I mean, it was it was, uh, it was torturous living. With no, it cost it cost my mom two divorces. You know, two divorces because uh, my dad, and my stepdad didn't want to put up with it. And then that left the onus on, you know, the kids, and my sister wasn't around. Um, when we finally pulled the intervention, we did it at our church, and of course, she didn't have a problem. We had the problem. Mm-hmm. She was, she, you know, she was fine. And then she came to realization that she wanted to get help. But we had the intervention, a book about it, and she went play for play. It was amazing how this book was written and how she did everything. You know, you're kicked out of the house. Well, no, no, you're not. I have a problem. And the good thing was that the the meetings were at our our church, so it was familiar surroundings. She just, you know, she just liked to drink. Yeah. That was was her thing. She loved to drink. She drank wine. I never knew what drugs she did, but I I don't want to know. Was this an intervention, or did you go into treatment, or? Well, I had, um, getting asked to move out by my ex-wife was sort of the initial wake-up call where I started to actually look at myself. And actually, it was my dad, who's no longer with us, but he um, he said, you know, this is, he said, why don't you come up to the lake? Why don't you, um, why don't we do some things fun together without drinking? And um, and he, he wasn't a drinker at all. You could count the number of cocktails that he would have in a year on two hands, maybe one hand. You know, he, re- he really wanted me to get better. Um, so I went up there and I started, you know, trying to consider it and begin that sort of, coming to terms process, which I didn't do very well at. Most people don't. Um, I, I basically lied about it. You know, yeah, you really can't detox yourself. No, no. In fact, um, so I did that for, for a while and had, had the family convinced that on a certain level that I was trying, I think. Um, and that wasn't hard because I actually was um, on some level trying to, trying to come to grips with it. My parents at the time were going back and forth between New Hampshire and Florida seasonally. And then when they left they went down to new, back down to Florida, and I was up there by myself. I know that they were still very worried about me, but I think I was still putting on a good enough face that I was trying, trying to try, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, unfortunately, I had a, a very close friend, uh, my closest friend, that winter of 2016. He actually passed away uh, while detoxing himself. His, uh, his heart gave out, and it was... Um, a few days after that, um, in 2016, March of 2016, that um, I actually spoke at his funeral, went out at, after his funeral and got rip and drunk. And the next day, my, you know, the, my younger brother, my older brother, I forget which one actually said it, but one of them said, are you done yet? And I said, yeah, I'm done. And um, that's kind of when I first threw in the towel. And they said, would you be willing to go to treatment? I said, Sure. So we called a treatment facility, uh, one of the ones that my friend had been to that um, he really enjoyed. This is a big part of my story because I had watched my friend over the years go into multiple treatments, be sectioned and, and try, try the fellowships and try, try everything and just not get it. And I was watching him for years kind of, I, I mean, I always knew in the back of my head that this was it. And he was sort of a, he was the type of drinker that kind of like became kind of unpredictable. Um, so he was more obvious um, about it. You know, when we were out um, getting combative with waitresses and combative with, he, he was, he seemed a little bit more obvious, at least to me. I could be, by the way, 
an alcoholic's view of their own story is horribly distorted. In the period of time of me being sober, this time, which is 20 months, which is the only time I've ever actually tried recovery, we can get into that, real recovery, not just not drinking. I've come to realize that what I believed is not actually what happened. So I've, my story, if you hear me tell my story 20 months ago, my story now, it's completely different because I honestly didn't know what the truth was. So I'm, that's sort of a blanket caveat for everything I'm saying. Um, well, it's, it's funny that you say that, if, if I might interrupt. When I have anxiety and panic or depression, it doesn't come around as much because I know the symptoms, but I will call friends and I will reference, hey, did this happen a while ago? Because you forget. Yeah. Or you don't want to remember. Hey, did I have numbness here? Or did I have, you know, did I have uh, bubbles in my chest? You know, stupid stuff. But it's always good to be able to reference it because I don't remember it that way. And the longer and longer it goes without having something, it feels like it could be something new and not the same old crap that it always is. And you have to remind yourself of that. But like you said, you know, your story 20 months ago is a lot different than it is now where my story might have been the same, but I don't remember it that yeah. way. So I have to use references. I have to use the notebooks that I used to write notes down in to give myself that levity that, yeah, it's just the same old stuff. Get over it. Keep going. Yeah. It's, it's wild because you have I, have, I will have very vivid memories and I will discuss them with people, which is part of this process. And they'll be like, that's not the way that happened. Um, and I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure I remember it that way. And they're like, no, that's not the way it happened. I'm like, okay. And I'm okay with that now. That's another thing too about this is, the process of getting okay with the truth. Um, Forgiving yourself <laughs> and wanting to get better. Yeah. That's the biggest thing, wanting to get better. Yeah, that is the biggest thing. That is certainly the biggest thing. So, yeah, I went, to, I went to treatment. I did a 90-day residential. Then thought I was cured, did nothing other than that. And um, surprise, surprise, that didn't work. I strung together a little time, and then I started – had a little mini relapse, and then I had another one, and then I was able to do like two and three weeks at a time, and then I would drink for two days. I actually called them mulligans um, I, or, or sobriety vacations. I had myself convinced at that time that lifetime sobriety was something I was going to be able to work towards, like slowly. <laughs> like, by the way, that's not true. Uh, so well, you'll be dead before. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You know? So, um, so that's what happened. And then my my father, who had been ill, um, he got sicker. Went to home hospice down in Florida, and then he passed. Right after he passed, my mother got sick. I went down to Florida to help take care of her. We got her transferred up to Boston. And then uh, I went back down to close up the house in Florida, and my wheels completely fell off again. And once again, I was sitting by the pool with a handle of vodka, not caring if I lived or died, and kind of secretly hoping I died. And my little brother put down my perfect twin uh, infant nieces, got on a plane, came down to Florida, dragged me back up to Boston, sent me to treatment. And this is where I had my moment where I was like, okay, it's, it's time to try and actually get better. And that's the journey that I, that's more important to me, um, which is the first conversation I had. And this is gonna be, this is something that I really like to impress upon people. Every time you sit down with anyone with long-term sobriety and you walk them back through their journey, you're gonna find moments with people, interactions with actual people, conversations. Almost every time you do this with someone, they have these stories they talk about. And it's always an interaction with a person. For me, it was a detox worker named Wendy um, who gave me my first uh, book, and she handed it to me, and she said, read this, and she just talked to me. And, and for the three hours that we talked that the first couple of days, it was the first time that I connected with anyone that had had long-term sobriety that made me think that's something I want. 
And that connection that leaves you sort of open and willing, that continues to keep that openness and that willingness to make the next right decision is the most important thing because what it does is it leads you not only to making the next right decision, but to having that next conversation. And that next conversation that gets you into the next step and gets you to the next. Well, it gives you hope. Yes. And it gives yeah. you a, 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 more, a positive cycle instead of the negative cycle that you're caught in. Yeah. And a human connection. If there's one thing I'm convinced about, and, I'll, and I'm happy to say this on the radio, is that there's only one true cure for addiction, and that's connection. Wow. I mean, you're lucky you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, because when you were down in Florida, I heard the unintentional, intentional suicide attempt. I'll drink this bottle. If I wake up, I won't know it. If I do wake up, I'm going to get another handle and, and, and keep, keep going, going. Yep. until it does happen. Yep. You know, I saw, you know, Carrie laughing and I was smiling, your sense of humor about it. I try to keep, a, you know, a sense of humor about things um, on my end also because everything's relative. If you can't at least laugh about something about it because you're in recovery, there's, there's always a silver lining to something. And I feel that, you know, not comedy, but if you can talk and have a smile – I think it, I think it it helps. Yeah, I mean, if I wasn't able to laugh about this, it wouldn't be worth doing. I mean, it's I because if if you can't laugh at it, if you can't, and and I'm a firm believer that humor is also an incredible piece of medicine. I mean, you you have to be able to find the humor in it, or it'll just be too dark, you know. Um, and I know that one of the subject matters of this is. Uh, uh, of your show and your common subject matters is the broader mental health spectrums. And you know, I, I joke about this all the time, but it's true. But like those, those expressive moments that make you laugh and make you, make you, make you cry, you have the arts and things like that. And those, those, the things that allow you to connect spiritually to anything, laughing and music and theater and um, horses and nature and everything, all those things that create that joy and that happiness in life and give you a spiritual connection to the greater world actually helps. It, it actually cures you of various things. And um, there's, there's tons of evidence for it as well. But I mean, personally, for me, there's so much of that in my life now that my life is completely devoid of before. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because um, I've said this, I've talked about this on the show, I'm a suicide attempt survivor. And the only reason, and I laugh, and a lot of people laugh about this was I was taking my pills. And then something happened. I had a panic attack. And my panic attacks, I'm afraid I was going to die. And here I am taking pills, and I'm like, you idiot, of course you're going to die. You're taking pills. You're trying to commit suicide. And that's when I started laughing my ass off, put the bottle away, called my, you know, called 911, called my therapist, and that's why they know that I'll, I'll never do that again. But it was, a, it, was, it was a very funny moment in the time that here I am taking pills. Now I'm having a panic attack, afraid I'm going to die, and I'm sitting here in my in my living room at three in the morning, laughing hysterically, and I'm just like, "Well, that's <laughs> you know, yeah. doesn't get any more ironic than that." No, and, 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 and you know, and, and that was it from there, you know. So yeah, I, I would say that, that at my bottom, right before that first treatment, uh, when my wife asked me to leave, the only reason I hadn't killed myself yet is I wasn't done writing the suicide note. Like I was literally writing; it was multiple pages long. And, and the reason why is because, and this is the, the hopelessness of, of an addict or an alcoholic, is you get to a certain point where you think you're doing the world a favor. You know, you, you're congratulating or, or thanking the people for putting up with you for so long, and you're saying to them, you're free now. I'm no longer going to be a burden to you. And I was going person by person. I was making sure I, I let everyone know 
that I was no longer going to be a burden. You were naming literally people? I was going— Person for person? Yeah, like, I was— Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Sorry, George. Yep. Sorry. Wow, that's pretty well thought out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because this process is mirrored in the fellowship, and uh, it made writing that quite easy. <laughs> so um, you said you're 20, 20 months. 20 months. 20 yeah. months in. Where are you now? What do you, if you can, what do you, what are you doing? How is the um, uh, recovery going? Well, this was what um, sort of happened at that point is that I went to treatment. I went to detox, and then I went to residential. And then after that, I went to a partial hospitalization program. And after that, I went, stayed in outpatient. And after that, um, I went and I stayed in counseling. I stayed in treatment um, and then remained in outpatient counseling for, I stayed in treatment, I think, for like 287 days. Um, Not intensive, you know, only inpatient for the first uh, 28 or so days. But this was the process where I was like, I just kept saying yes. In, in, in recovery, they call them suggestions. They say, we're going to make these suggestions. You can take them because we suggest these are going to work. And the person that has the best chance is the person that takes all the suggestions. At least that's what I've seen. In my experience, And when you see someone, they just take all the suggestions. So I just said, I'm just going to keep saying yes. I had an incredibly supportive family. I, I'm very lucky in that respect, extremely lucky in that respect, that I have a supportive, loving family, friends, that without this, I could not have, I don't think I could have done it, that allowed me to take the time to do that and to, to, really, to really focus on my recovery. I ended up going to Cape Cod, uh, which is one of the most incredible recovery communities in, in, parents in, live down there. in the country. It's unbelievable. And I just stayed in and, I, and I, I, I went to meetings. I went to two, three meetings a day. I went to, I worked, you know, helping people, giving people rides. I worked, um, you know, Speaking, I just I did everything I could. I, I got completely immersed into the recovery community and focused on nothing but that for a solid year. So I did that. I got to the end of it, and I was excited, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to some version of my old life. Uh, actually went through the process, and I got an amazing job at an incredible company up in Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, and I was in the process of moving off Cape Cod, and I got there, and I ended up in a conversation with the facility that I went to for detox and residential treatment. And they were looking for someone to represent them um, in Cape Cod. And I had never considered that. It's funny, too, because you spend enough time in the recovery community going to meetings and stuff. And you start to think that for like a guy like me, I only have a few options. It's go back to my career, teach yoga, sell real estate, or work in treatment. Um, and it's like this hysterical kind of cliche. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the cliche. Um, so I took the job working in treatment. And it was really interesting because I had already accepted the other job. And I went to the, the CEO and the founder of that company who had hired me. And I was very honest with her. I said, listen, I'm, I have to turn down the offer that I accepted. And here's the reason why. And I told her that I was a recovering alcoholic. And I've been given this opportunity to help other people get back on their feet and, and fight their addiction. And she was unbelievably impressed with the decision. She said, I support you. Um, that's amazing. I, if anything, you've just confirmed that, it was, that you were the right person for me to try and hire to that level of care. It was, I was blown away. And she actually said, and if it doesn't work out, give me a call. Um, so wow. yeah, I was blown away by that. And it's one of these things that for alcoholics and addicts, we don't get it. Like we don't like that level of honesty is something that we are so foreign with because it leaves us exposed. And that's one thing that we're just inherently afraid of. But your story is like the, what they always say, um, the punk in school always is going to make the best teacher. 
<laughs> because he knows all the tricks. And he's, you know, I know a couple of kids from high school, they were, and, and they became, they became teachers, yeah. you know? So it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that, that foreign, you know, to, to do something like that. That's a hell of a story. How is your job now? How do you, how do you like it? It's, um, it's challenging. It's really, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, I, obviously I spent many, many years in, you know, more traditional business environment. Now, my actual role is to work with people in the mental health profession, people in the medical profession, so case managers and um, social workers and outpatient mental health professionals and other treatment programs and, and police and task force and anybody that comes into contact with an, uh, an addict in need of treatment to try and work with them to get that person to accept treatment and then get them in for treatment of themselves. And a lot of times that involves actually talking to them and sitting down and having that conversation. Um, I've got this great, vicious before and after photo of what I looked like the day before I went into detox. And then ne right next to it, a day, a picture of me six months sober. And if I sit in someone's hospital bed and I show them that photograph. Um, uh, it's a wake-up call. They're, they're, their eyes light up because almost none of them look as bad as I looked. Um, now, it's funny how this, is, <laughs> how this comes full circle because you know what? Now you're that human contact that you looked for to get to where you are today. Now you're going to be that contact to get somebody 20 months, 30 months, 40 months down that road. Yeah, I hesitate to, to give myself that much credit. Uh, See, I'm the same way. You, <laughs> I'm the same way, but you know what? You, you have to because you know what? You take the victories when you can get them, and you got to take the compliments. So you just say, all right, you know, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But, but you've got to realize, I mean, you got to believe in yourself. And as modest as you are, you remind me a lot of me. The thing is that, like I said, you're going to be that human contact that you were looking for to so many people. That's why you're an open book. That's why I'm an open book. You know, that's why we have close to 3,000 downloads because I'm open. Our guests are open. They're looking for somebody who can relate to your story, to my story, to Carrie's story as a f physician. The other people who have come in here who have, who have struggled are the other doctors who come in here. You and I are the litmus test that puts, that puts the pen to paper from what the doctors are trying to tell people that there is hope. You don't have to be curled up in a ball, drink yourself to death, wait for you, you know, wait to die. You gotta you gotta remember that. You gotta give yeah. yourself a lot of props here. Well you know? I'll give I'll give myself credit for one thing, which is um, I, I know for Your a hair? Fact. <laughs> Did you have the hair before you did you always yeah. keep the hair? I've always had the hair, yeah. yeah. For anybody I, listen, I'm a I'm I'm a straight male, as straight as it gets, but this guy has <laughs> fantastic hair and I told him that off air when we came in but it's outstanding thank you I appreciate it um, you know the one thing I do know for sure is that my entire existence was entirely selfish for my entire life I did nothing um, but take 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 and take and sometimes if you were a friend of mine or you were around me that worked to your benefit if you were in the same mood if you wanted to have the same fun that I wanted to have, it worked a lot to your benefit because a lot of the times I was fun. Um, if for any reason you got in my way or, or you were not in the mood to have that kind of fun or I could have fun at your, at, at your detriment, I would. So I was just, you know, my nickname on my old bowling league was Tornado. And there's a reason for that. And because I was a tornado, I just blew through. And it wasn't like, you know, it was much more about just that, that incredible selfishness. It wasn't really about necessarily making a spectacle or getting into trouble or things like that. It was just that incredible laser-focused selfish you know, behavior. And that, I think, is oftentimes consistent across people with this disease, is that we lose the ability to look outside ourselves. And 
And that's that's the only thing I can say to to your point is that now I'm I think I'm actually helping people. And that's the first time in my life I've ever helped anybody. Of course you're helping people. I have just re- literally one more question. My mom when she was in recovery hid the fact that she was a recovering alcoholic. Now she wears it like a badge. Mm-hmm. Because I told her, you know, and I'm not going to list celebrities on the air here, but, you know, if you look at celebrities who are recovering alcoholics, they, they hide it but for their on-air personality, but they don't off. So do you, are you, are you, do you wear it like a badge now? Like, I'm proud that of what I've done. I'm 20 months, and, and here I am. I do. I'm not. I'm not proud of it from um, a what I've done perspective, uh, meaning I'm not – I don't think that – I'm any sort of great achievement of sobriety or anything of that nature. But what I do know is this, is that I have an obligation to help the next sick and suffering alcoholic and addict. That obligation, I think, whether you do it quietly or privately um, or you do it um, publicly or however you want to do it, the stigma and the fear and the isolation of addiction is what kills addicts and alcoholics. And then, by the way, I don't think there should be a distinction between the two, but that's maybe another another show. Um, that that isolation and that fear is keeps people hidden. And if they don't feel like there's other people out there willing to raise their hand and saying, I'm one, um, it's going to keep them hidden and the stigma is going to continue. So people need to raise their hand and say, I'm one. Um, well, you definitely came to the right show. <laughs> We talk a lot about stigma here, and that was actually one of my my questions to you is managing the stigma that comes along with recovery. And there's positive, I'm sure. There's positive um, viewpoints of being in recovery, depending on the setting you're in. But have you experienced any negative stigma or or repercussions of of your recovery in the community or professionally? Not really, and I think that's more of a a function of the environment in which I was brought up in. I've always been in a fairly educated, open-minded, accepting culture, whether that be my childhood, my family, my friend circle. I've never had to face any of that overwhelming cultural stigma that a lot of cultures do face, a lot of different um, groups do face. And so I didn't really have to face any of that. Also, I wasn't in a highly regulated profession, and I didn't have a profession where, and I didn't even really choose to stay in my profession, but We are living in a time now where if you are in sort of arts and technology, um, um, you know, communications fields, things like that, that that recovery is is honored. Um, And especially if you work in treatment, there are plenty of professions out there uh, where that doesn't exist yet. There are lots of people who genuinely and rightly so fear for their livelihood if they come out and if they step forward and ask for help. Um, and that's something that we have to we have to figure out a way around because people are literally dying because they're afraid of losing their job. Well, it's a sickness. I mean, it's a sickness just like like the flu, just like anything else. It's addiction sickness. is a disease. Of course, it is absolutely. And interesting to hear you you talk about how you know almost like that the concept and the reality of how closeted addiction can be, and how trying to identify somebody who is an alcoholic and who you can help must be pretty difficult because even listening to your own story, here you had this persona of what you were trying to portray and then what the actual is. So then how do you help somebody get help if you can't find them or identify them? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, uh, 
Listen, I, I don't pretend to think that I did a very good job hiding. I think I did an okay job uh, to some people. Those very close to me knew what was going on. And I think a lot of people also felt like maybe the same thing that I thought, like just hoping I would grow out of it, you know, <laughs> um, or hoping I would take the necessary steps um, to do it on my own. Um, but or if you had stayed well hidden, you wouldn't be here. Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, that's that's one of those things that I think that from a treatment in, in t- sort of talking about this from a professional standpoint, one of the things that I want, I'm trying to focus on my job is the treatment world has been so focused forever out of necessity um, on pulling people out of the river right before they go over the waterfall. So when they've lost their job or when they're in the emergency room or when they've gotten a DUI, that sort of that last second before they actually go over the waterfall and die. And you're pulling people out of the river at that point. What we need to do in the process of destigmatizing addiction is then empower people to identify people that need this help before they fall in the river. So you need to be having this conversation at the human resources level. You need to have this conversation at the professional association level. And this is a process that was put in place many years ago in the 70s and 80s, I think earlier 80s, something like that, at the EAP, the, the prevalence of EAPs, employee assistance programs. But they're just not over, they're not utilized the way they're intended to be utilized. You need to start identifying people. The only way to do that is to make it open enough for people to come out. Because if people aren't entirely obvious about it, if they're showing up to work every day and then they're doing their job, but they're killing themselves at night, there's no way to figure it out until they start missing work, um, calling in sick, having accidents, getting DUIs, things like that, getting arrested, which is, by the way, at the point where they're going to be going over the waterfall. So what happens? We need the stigma lifted to the point where people feel comfortable coming forward before it gets to that point. And I think that vehicles such as this podcast, such as um, campaigns that we see, more discussion and open discussion about addiction and mental illness is, is kind of breaking some of those barriers. But, you know, one thing I definitely see is your that relatability that we've been talking about during this podcast that you were talking about and that desire to pay it forward and how impactful to hear somebody else going through this something similar or seeing the other side of things. You know, that's essentially every every communication and, and human contact you have, you're slowly breaking that stigma, but you're also potentially enticing somebody out of their shell and into treatment. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, ultimately, there's this there's this weird part of the stigma that convinces um, people with addiction that they are addicts or alcoholics because they are bad people. The, the hard part is that, first of all, that's obviously not the case, but active addiction can make you do bad things and does make you do bad things. But uh, the other side of this is being, then this is really more focused on the recovery process, but being a really good person actually does help keep you stay sober. And the reason why is because if you are living a life free of guilt, free of resentment, uh, free of remorse, free of anger, free of selfish and self-seeking motives, free of all those things that create those demons, then you have less demons to quiet. And so that's where this, the whole spiritual side of this, and when I say spiritual, I don't mean religious. Religion is obviously a path to spirituality, but there are many paths to spirituality. And so anything that makes you connected to the universe as a whole, whether that be nature or art or, or religion or philosophy or meditation or, you know, anything that connects you and helps you quiet those voices, helps you lead a life, uh, a more spiritual life, can help keep you sober. And just 
showing that in, in any context to someone that's struggling without it being wrapped in dogma, without it being wrapped in the fear that a lot of people have of things like organized religion, it becomes appealing. And it, you can tell when you're having a conversation with someone that is not just sober but in recovery, you can tell. They have this calming presence about them. And they're just – they don't get upset over the most silly things. They don't get angry in traffic. And because of that, that doesn't necessarily – they're not necessarily being better people than other people, but they're doing it selfishly to keep themselves sober. <laughs> it's very odd. I, it's one of these things that like when you're helping – you talked about it earlier about helping others. Um, a big part of, of recovery is helping others. It's one of the biggest parts of recovery is helping others. And it's largely selfish altruism. I mean, it is. Well, by being an open book, you've got no lies. Yeah. Because people, they cover up, they lie, then they get caught in the web of lies. Now they've got stress. Now, that oh, what lie did I tell this person? What lie? That's why I'm an open book. You want to know something? Ask me about it. I'm going to give you the truth. If, and people say, you wear your heart on a sleeve to a fault. I don't give a damn. <laughs> you know, if you want to, if you don't like what you hear from me, if you don't like the truth, my truth, then that's fine. Because people, I realized once I found my voice after coming out about my mental illness, people viewed me differently and they didn't like the truth, maybe because they treated me badly. And I finally started seeing that. You know, it was it was one of those things. You find your voice, you lose people, but then you gain the respect of other people. I've had a lot of people who have signed up for this podcast who say, wow, you're pretty brave. And I don't think of myself as brave. I just think of myself as this needs to be, this is what I was put on uh, on the earth to do. It feels purposeful. It does. It does. Like but, I'm not doing, it. Uh, but I'm not doing it for, for me. I'm doing it for other people. But I'm also doing it because I want to do it, and it, and it helps me in the, in the same point. And I don't think that's a selfish thing to do. Yeah, that's and that's that's really the like part of this is when I'm helping somebody else, if I'm giving someone a ride to a meeting, or if I'm just sitting with someone talking to them, um, it takes me out of myself. Yeah. Um, and it and and that is a necessary thing for I need healthy ways to take myself out of myself because if not, I mean, my addiction will manifest itself in anything. I will, like, when I remember getting out of treatment this time, and I love toasted um, English muffins with butter and raspberry jam. So I was out of treatment. I was living by myself. I went and I bought it. I had toasted up and toasted uh, English muffin with raspberry jam and butter. I ate it, and then I ate the entire package. I just went through the whole package. I toasted all of them, and I ate all of them. And I was sitting there, and I was like, Oh my God, that is such an addict thing to do. I'm like, yeah, like, it's better than going through a bottle. You know, it, it, it's funny that you bring that up because I, I had written down before uh, you got here. Two years ago, I got to interview Alice Cooper at Comic Con, at Rhode Island Comic Con. Mm -hmm. He's a recovering alcoholic, 35 years now. Mm -hmm. And he was addicted, he, but he knew that in 35 years, he had never cheated on his wife. It was just alcohol. He was addicted to alcohol. And he said, you know what? I needed to find something to take the place of my alcohol addiction. Now he golfs seven days a week. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> but before, before the concert, and he says it's very, I mean, here's a guy who he told us his, this is his onstage persona, Alice Cooper. And then when I'm off stage, this is who I am. I, I don't live my character. He's like, but for so many years I drank. But now he's like, I go on the course. I play seven days a week, and that's my new addiction. And he's in his addiction now is trying to get to be a scratch golfer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you know he was he was very very open about it. So it wouldn't be uh, a proper exploring mental illness podcast if I didn't mention the words coping skills because I have stated that on many occasions. It's my favorite uh, phrase. But what I hear is 
coping skills, Alice Cooper's coping skill, replacing addictions. Now, some can be negative replacements, obviously, like... Like entire sleeves of English muffins. Like entire sleeves of English muffins. So a good combination with the butter. Oh, it's and delicious. The, it's yeah. delicious. <laughs> so, you know, one of your, co- one, I think, popular coping skill is like a replacement therapy. So I'm going to take this behavior and I'm going to then do this behavior in its place because you can't take away the the urge, the behavior, or maybe some of the results of the behavior, emotionally calming, whatever the case is, could possibly be, or soothing, could possibly be replaced by something else. So, you know, you call it selfish altruism. Selfish altruism, yeah. And I don't think that there's anything selfish about that at all. I look at that as one of your coping skills and and could be a popular one amongst many. I like that phrase a lot. I wrote it down and I'm going to keep it in the back of my head because it's an ironic phrase cuz you know Yeah. If you think about the place you're coming from, the work you're doing, like it isn't even just in about recovery. I mean, people who do human services and and pay for it, social workers and and volunteers, there is a little hint of selfish altruism there. Yeah. We were talking about how good it makes me feel to help you. Yeah, look at that's that. A good, getting, that's a good thing. Like you it, said, it's exactly. not Exactly. It's a, it's, a it's a positive thing. I'm sorry. I, I'm just writing down. i got to stop at Market Basket for some English muffins and stuff. <laughs> and some raspberry jam. Yeah, yeah, because Thomas's English muffins, man. You got me hungry now. <laughs> They're so delicious. <laughs> that's good stuff it's right the there. It's the nooks yeah. and the crannies. Yeah. I actually, it's funny. I, I, I uh, at one point got to read my intake notes, not the clinical notes, but the notes that of the of the person that actually fills my role, that um, took the call from my brother, and my intake call, my prescreen phone call, and I actually said on that prescreen phone call that I wouldn't go anywhere for treatment unless they had Thomas's English muffins, and I'm re- <laughs> I'm reading through this and I'm like these things don't say like they had all sorts of things that didn't apply to me like fled to Florida I'm like I didn't flee to Florida I was already there, um, and then I got to the English muffin one I was like okay that kind of sounds like me. <laughs> That's awesome. You had a rider before going into treatment like a, like a rock star. By the way, they, 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 didn't, they didn't have it, you know. But it's you know it's it's interesting that you look at these things and you look at you know I do what I would like to talk about briefly if you don't mind is this separation between addict and alcoholic and this has been around for a long time and I don't understand why it exists um, I don't understand why alcohol isn't actually categorized as a narcotic other than the fact that it's legal you know one of the times you hear about this is you hear one of the things that always stuck me is when you hear people telling their story especially traditional alcoholics they will say I always drank for effect and they'll say that. Um, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to say because what is, I'm sorry. What does that mean? Drink for effect, yeah. like drink for the effect of alcohol. Oh, okay. And the reason why it's a ridiculous thing to say is because everyone drinks for the effect. I mean, archaeologists have evidence ten thousand years old of people trying to make booze taste good. Okay, in jugs. So for ten thousand years, we've been distilling, mixing, brewing, flavoring, blending booze just to make it palatable enough to drink, which is essentially rotten fruit juice. Okay. So everyone drinks for effect on some level. Now, whether it's one glass of wine for the nice, light, calming effect, or in my case, an entire handle of vodka. Some people don't do it to the point where it destroys their lives because they're normal people. They're not addicts. Okay? Other people, like us, do that. And this distinction between the two is kind of ridiculous. Um, we need to stop that. We need, to, we, need, we need alcoholics to stop separating themselves out and saying, I'm not like that. Um, because, but there are different challenges we face. Um, alcohol is advertised everywhere. It's available everywhere. We treat the addictions the same, but 
you know, opioids and alcohol. Opioids might be a thousand pound weight and alcohol might be a 500 pound weight. But if you tie it to someone's ankle and you drop them in the water, it's going to kill both unless you pull them out of the water. Okay. Oh, that's a great analogy. Well, you, yeah, you know, and I had written down also before you came in, now that marijuana is, is legalized in so many states, you know, recently in Massachusetts, everybody is just like, hey, hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm a pothead, man. I'm going to get my recreational marijuana. But, you know, alcohol has been legal almost forever except for the prohibition years and now these people who used to hide their addiction to to marijuana they can just come out because it's legal it's it, it's hypocritical because there are people who've been drinking all their lives and it's and it's you know what i mean yeah it's, i it's, mean it's been legal and i just i i don't i have no why 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 a pot why a pot smokers get a pass and you know alcoholics don't i see i have no problem with any of these things being legal them being legal or illegal and prohibition is a great example of that just making alcohol legal didn't make alcohol go away okay in no fact, they still if, they still <laughs> make it in toilets in prison. Yeah, exactly so people are going to use vices whether we legalize them or illegal it doesn't matter so i'm fine with them being legal it's more about um just the perception of listen an, an addict or an alcoholic an addict, it's it's this you either are one or you aren't um, I think, well, that's that's what know. I was trying to get at because, yeah. I mean, alcohol has been around legal longer than marijuana where marijuana was, you know, you stay in your bedroom and you get high. But people drink in bars in public all the time. Yeah, there's a, there's a funny story about that for me. I, I've, in the recovery community, I have lots of close friends that are former heroin, are recovering heroin addicts. And I was my first, I've now had two sober Christmases. But right before my first sober Christmas, I was kind of like not stressing out, but just thinking it through because there's a lot of drinking around Christmas. And my family's lake house in New Hampshire, there's a, there's a big, beautiful bar like a lot of houses have um, and in the living room. And it's, you know, it's part of just the social norms of society, you know. And, you know, there's both of my brothers enjoy drinking, but both of them are normal drinkers. They don't get blacked out drunk every time they drink. They have like one or two glasses of wine or a cocktail and that's it. Um, and my mother drinks also, but she drinks, con, you know, conservatively and, and controlled, um, and she doesn't ruin her life. But I was having this conversation with my, one of my friends, and I was kind of stressed out about it. And he's like, I don't see what you're so worried about. And this friend of mine is a recovering heroin addict. And I was like, man, think about it this way. Imagine if your parents had an entire room in their house that was dedicated and celebrated and stocked with heroin. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, you got a good point there. Yeah. <laughs> I had read that a lot of people, the, the there's a misconception about New Year's and Christmas and Thanksgiving. The day that recovering alcoholics need to take care of the most is the 4th of July. That's the holiday that people drink the most. Is, is that correct information? I honestly don't know. I, I didn't really differentiate. You know, it's funny. I, I became more protective of my drinking around holidays um, because I knew that the spotlight was on me. So I tried to make sure that I controlled myself enough that I wouldn't stick out because everyone else was. So I wanted them to be looked at. I wanted the people that occasionally got too drunk to be the ones that got too drunk so they couldn't point the spotlight at me. I don't know what the actual numbers are. I have heard that before. Were you hiding the fact so that you didn't stick out because you were worried that they were going to take your alcohol away? I didn't know that then. I know that now, um, that I went to great lengths to, to protect my drinking. Um, so that you could keep drinking. So that I could keep drinking, yeah. Okay. I mean, it wasn't until that... 
that hospital event that um, when I was sort of detoxing in, in pre-op and they noticed it and they noticed some problems, they noticed my liver, they noticed everything else and they were like, they're like, dude, you've got a problem, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, I might. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. Again, this is in this in this we might be going into way too much here, but there's a lot to talk about because I, in that process, of the year leading up to my separation, and the events of losing the losing the career, losing the company, and all those things, I had started going to see uh, therapists and and psychiatrists and psycho and, and psychologists, and I was trying to get that at you know, get those things because I thought it was that. Um, and every time I met with a, with a, a, a clinician or a, th- a therapist or a psychiatrist, I would, of course, lie about my drinking. I would say, oh, I probably have, you know, three or four drinks a night, you know, something like that, five or six times a week. Because we, everyone lies about their drinking. And because of that, leading up to it, the symptoms and everything, I was diagnosed with almost everything. I was diagnosed with um, general anxiety disorder, depression, clinical depression. I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was put on SSRIs. I was put on anxiety medication, which as an alcoholic, I you're was not supposed to take it with alcohol. I, it was Holy great. Geez. It was wonderful. Um, benzos are basically just alcohol in pill form. It's the same, same effect, essentially. Um, and I was put on all these medications. And of course, I wasn't getting any benefit from them um, because I was drinking. And I had all the symptoms. So when I got to the point where I actually put the booze down and I got some sobriety behind me and I started seeing the, and I was still in therapy, all of those symptoms disappeared. Um, the sleeplessness, the sleeplessness, which is the hardest one for me. Like I, when I was drinking, there was a point in every severe alcoholic's life where he's maintenance drinking 24 hours a day. And I was, um, and this is where the nights are. You go to sleep, you sleep for about 45 minutes, you wake up, you take three huge shots of vodka, you close your eyes, you sleep for another 45 minutes, you wake up, you take three shots of vodka, you close your eyes, you sleep for 45 minutes, and that's through your entire night. And then you wake up and you try and pull yourself together and you're maintenance drinking. You're not even drinking at that point to get drunk. You're just drinking so that you don't experience withdrawal. That, those sleeplessness and the anxiety that comes with that, your mind running all the time, just constantly running and not being able to turn, on, turn your mind off and drinking to try and turn your mind off and then doing you know, anything to try and quiet your mind. Um, that insanity looks a lot like all of those disorders. When you remove the primary offender, and we see this a lot in, in mental health, like a lot of times you get patients that come into Fuller Hospital and they present as dual, they present a certain way, and then they come in and then you remove the primary offender, you detox them, and all of a sudden, they're no longer dual. You know, They're no longer appropriate for that level of care. Now, this is not to say that those aren't all very legitimate clinical diagnosis, and that they don't all go away when you remove alcohol, but if you don't remove the primary offender, you're never going to know because it always looks the same. Very good point. And I 100%, you know, agree that, you know, one of the things I often say when I talk about dual diagnosis, because it's not for everybody, you'll hear people say, well, I think that everybody who has an addiction has a dual diagnosis of, you know, primary a mental health diagnosis and <clears throat> substance abuse disorder. That's not always the case. There's been plenty of, of people, yourself included, that I have met who legitimately had an addiction and really didn't show any additional signs once the addiction was under control of what could be considered like a a potential diagnosis of um, a mental health need. So, you know, it's definitely out there, but it's, it is rare though. I will say that most of us have something else. Like I definitely think I still have the PTSD uh, for a variety of things. I certainly don't want to minimize it, like, but it does exist. Absolutely. And so then the other ha- part of things, of course, working 
um, in an inpatient setting and working with individuals directly um, who have a dual diagnosis is listening to their stories and really understanding the how different it is for everybody and what their reason for picking up, their reason for maintaining. Um, some folks will consider it self-medicating in order to maintain mental health need. I think the best uh, story I ever had was I was doing some per diem work in our partial program at Fuller. And it was one week, um, and it was a dual diagnosis program, and I had the opportunity to, we do an assessment in the very beginning to see how people are feeling, you know, what's your, how are you feeling, are you experiencing any symptoms, kind of a safety assessment, but it's a check-in. So I did a check-in with um, the group, and there was this one woman who I remember distinctly was saying that her, like, her, I think her anxiety was high and she was feeling depressed and she had just arrived at the program because I said, oh, when did you start with us? And it was very recent. So, you know, imagine somebody's new and they have, they're still in the very beginning of the treatment process. And for folks out there, we have to acknowledge and honor the fact that when you do have a dual diagnosis, folks who have that, the amount of work that they have to do to maintain their sobriety and mental health is a, a significant struggle. They have two chronic conditions that they will have for the rest of their life. That's a daily job. Just it's a like daily, exactly. Else. And it's a, it's a very fine line and a fine balance. And our program does a great job of trying to balance the both. So fast forward, a week later, I'm in the same group. I'm running the class. I'm doing the assessment. And here she is. She's just like, I feel really good. I don't feel, you know, very many of my symptoms. They have me on this, you know, the doctor that I've seen because we do medication consultation as well as group ther group therapy. She's like, she has me on this really great combination of psychiatric meds that I actually feel like they're working. And one of the things we ask in our assessment is what is your level of craving? What's your craving level? So the week prior, it was high. Like on a scale of one to 10 on the like hurt scale, it was probably like a seven or an eight. When I talked to her a week later, after she had talked about having started a different medication regime and obviously having already been detoxed, she said that her craving level had reduced significantly. And that was a huge aha moment for me for understanding the science of trying to help stabilize somebody medicinally and through learning coping skills when it comes to addiction and mental health. Now, see, to this day, I still have a problem where, well, I'll always have the, the panic, anxiety, depression, but the thing is that I lived in chaos. When I was first diagnosed, everything was chaotic. Everything was crazy. Even, even when I was growing up, you know, I was working, you know, I worked at a ballpark and that was chaotic. That was 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And to this day, if I get down, you know, it was like I was thriving on that chaos. And then one day, a long time ago, I was just like, I started panicking and I called my mom and I said, Ma, I'm panicking. She's like, why? I was like, everything's fine. Exactly. <laughs> there was absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah. It was that one moment of clarity where I had no chaos. But to this day, if I get upset, I go back into that chaos because even though it's uncomfortable, it's comfortable. It's so funny that you say that because um, that obviously is a, is a trait that crosses uh, both of our, our, our addiction, our, our diseases, because that is such a, a hallmark of people that suffer from um, addiction. And it was true with me, which is that just thriving on chaos. Like you needed chaos. Yeah, and you don't want it, but yeah. 
but it's 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 comfortable. It's, I, it's, I have it's this crazy, very huh? I have this very good friend of mine in, in the recovery community, and she she actually said that her therapist had said to her once, uh, you know, your problem isn't isn't drugs and alcohol. You're addicted to distraction, um, and that you're hit, like great that squirrel that hit home exactly <laughs> that hit home for me. I was, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm ADD, uh, you know, crazy ADD. I. I need stimuli and I need dif- t- distraction constantly to keep me out of myself. And because inside my brain is a dangerous place. You don't want to be there and I don't want to be there. No one wants to be there. So I need to be distracted. And alcohol provided an incredible distraction. And everything else in my life, the career I chose, unbelievable distraction. The startup technology world, unbelievable distraction. Um, just the chaos that then we manufacture. And it's interesting you should bring that up because when you have this, people get go to treatment, they go to inpatient, and they go to PHP or whatever, they go to a sober house, and they go back to their lives, and they get some sobriety under themselves, and they start getting things back. They get like the they get the job back, the car back, the apartment back, and all of a sudden, everything's, everything's great and normal, and they're like, this is terrible. <laughs> what, what is this? What is this? And it's a, it's a, norm, a normal life that a normal person would look at and be like, that's awesome. And the, but the addict, the alcoholic is like, this is, this is insane. I can't I, be this. Yeah, this it was is scary. Too calm. It was scary the first time. Everything was, there was, I had a day when nothing went wrong. It was, yeah. it was crazy. <laughs> so, it makes um, no sense. So, Todd, we can't thank you enough for coming and joining us today and telling us your story. I found it to be incredibly impactful and influential. And um, I hope that our listeners out there as well will um, take take something, anything away from uh, hearing about your journey. Yeah, and, if, and honestly, if anyone out there listening, if you guys are struggling and you need help, uh, reach out to the show um, and they can get in touch with me and I'd be happy to help. If you are interested in reaching out to us, um, you can find us in various uh, places. Our email address is mentalillness, all one word, at wararadio.com or you can go to our website wararadio.com you can listen to our podcast Uh, we also have a facebook page and you can search for exploring mental illness you can follow us we post about our podcast releases and of course we always take feedback if anybody is interested in learning uh, more about uh, mental health services in the Attleboro Massachusetts area uh, specifically at Fuller Hospital you can contact me Carrie Baloo directly at 508-761-8500, extension 2354. If you have a question and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you're seeking services or help, you can also dial that same number and hit option number one for admissions. We have a 24-7 intake department with a caring and knowledge individual on the other end of the line. Uh, You can also go to our website, www.fullerhospital.com. We have information about our services, ways to contact us, and also information about the podcast. Okay. And I I also want to thank Todd. I feel like a kinship because of what my mother went through and what I go through, you know, everything is very similar. So we hope to have you back because I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can uh, we can discuss about this. Distribution sources, I mean, we're coming up on 3,000 downloads, which I want to thank everybody for that. I mean, we, we're doing good. People are interested. But just in case you can't find us, we're on iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn, and YouTube. Uh, once again, we have a Facebook page called Exploring Mental Illness. You can rate us and, and leave us a review. We air on WARA Radio at 6 o'clock, that's 1320 a.m., WARA Radio in the Attleboro, Massachusetts area. Or you can go to WARARadio.com, listen uh, online, or if you want to review other podcasts that we've done, they're all, they're all on there. 
once again, I want to thank Todd. I want to thank Carrie. And just remember, you know, we always say it, you're not alone. If anybody's listening out there and they've, and they've learned more information and you worry about somebody, you know, talk to them, dial 911. No one's going to get angry for you for looking out for the well-being of someone. And you might just be that person who saves a life instead of someone taking one. So uh, until next time, uh, be well, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.